you to open to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, and Joanne's going to read Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through to 44. Luke 4, 14. I was thinking there might have been some favouritism. I was very glad I got this passage and not the one last week. <laughs> and um, I was quite struck when I was reading it. Um, the, the change in attitude of the crowd within seven verses. Um, it's, it's quite amazing. So from chapter 4, starting at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever 
and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us in not leaving us in darkness, but uh, enlightening us with the uh, truth of your word and the power of your spirit. Father, we ask that your spirit would be moving amongst us now as we uh, consider this text of scripture, that we might know, love and serve and trust Jesus even more. In his name we pray. Amen. My favourite Clint Eastwood movie is called Pale Rider. Do you know the film? No, not surprised. Uh, It's set in the late 1800s. It's a western in the uh, Californian mining town of La Hood. And there are some decent people who live in La Hood, uh, ordinary small-time prospectors who are just trying to eke out a living for their families. But there's a villain. <clears throat> the, uh, the local villain is a wealthy miner uh, named Koi Lahood. It's kind of his town. And uh, Koi Lahood, with his gun-slinging henchmen, and uh, with the local sheriff on his payroll, is well entrenched as the wrongful and the tyrannical ruler of La Hood City. Until that is the day that the mysterious preacher rides into town. With his <clears throat> steely-eyed glaze and his confident presence, make my day, and his skill with a gun, things are about to change. Coyle Hood and his henchmen, they become unnerved. They become unnerved because someone else has arrived. Someone who who has moral authority, someone who unsettles their wrongful authority, someone who knows how to shoot. (laughs) Turns out the preacher, the Clint Eastwood character, was actually a repentant gunslinger. He wasn't really a preacher. He just wore a clerical collar for effect. And uh, he was actually known to La Hood and his cronies. They recognised him from the past, from gunfights that he'd been, people he'd killed and so on. And they recognised that around about the time, same time that he wiped them all out 
and restored rightful rule to the humble folk of La Hood City. There you go, my favourite Clint Eastwood movie. <clears throat> it is interesting, though, when you think about uh, how bullies uh, react when they realise that their position is now under threat. Uh, how bullies uh, behave and respond when they uh, understand that someone more powerful than them has arrived on the scene. And it's, uh, I don't want to draw too much of a parallel here uh, with Scripture, although it was interesting that uh, the movie, uh, Pale Rider, <clears throat> was actually inspired by the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. <laughs> but um, it's this kind of issue that we, we, we actually notice it in the ministry of Jesus because the, the Bible describes Satan as being the prince of this world. The prince of this world. Because he's got a grip on people. Uh, he has power over us. His power is the guilt and the effect of our sins. Uh, the uh, uh, guilt and effect, which means we don't live God's way now, and the guilt and effect, which means that we will spend eternity in hell. He has power over us, and it's a power which we by ourselves cannot shake. But when Jesus turned up, Satan and his demons realised that they were under threat. And there is this uh, unnerving demonic reaction to the coming and the presence of Jesus. Uh, like what we see here in Luke chapter 4, if you want to have that open in front of you, because uh, having fended off uh, the assail of Satan in the desert, uh, which we saw last week, in uh, today's passage, we're told that Jesus now returns to his home district of Galilee. And uh, in verse 15 of chapter 4, Jesus visited synagogues uh, in the countryside of, of Galilee, uh, he, he visited synagogues over a period of numerous weeks because he visited synagogues on various Sabbath days where he got an invite to preach. Now, <clears throat> just to uh, give some background information there on synagogues, synagogues are not, uh, are not like the temple. Uh, in a synagogue, there is no altar. There are no priests. There are no sacrifices. It's not like the temple in, Jeru in Jerusalem. Um, synagogues, and the word synagogue means a meeting, a, a sunair, like we talk about synergy, working together. It's a meeting of, of people and it came to refer to the place where people would meet. Uh, synagogues were meeting places for Jews which uh, we understand probably developed during the time of the Babylonian exile when God's people were living as captives in a foreign land where they were in the darkness of a foreign land where they had no temple. And in fact, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. They met in synagogues uh, for community activities, uh, but on the Sabbath they would hear God's word read and taught and that they would, they would pray. So a synagogue... It's, it's less like a temple, it's more like a, like a church. It's not like what we do here Sunday by Sunday. 
And so we're told in verse 15 that Jesus taught God's word in the synagogues of Galilee and it went down pretty well. Everybody praised him. Now, Jesus, of course, grew up in Galilee, in the town of Nazareth. So the question, therefore, is what would the reaction be like in the synagogue in Nazareth? Because Jesus had grown up in that synagogue. Uh, it would be like uh, many of our children here in our church who uh, have uh, uh, kind of grown up in our church, uh, for whom their church experience is pretty much us and this place and so on. It's, it's part of their identity. It's part of who they are. Well, in verse 16, Jesus turned up now at his family synagogue in, in, on the Sabbath. And we're told that he, it was his custom to go to the synagogue every Sabbath day. Now, this time it was different. Word had spread around that he'd been uh, doing ministry in other parts of Galilee, preaching and uh, presumably the miraculous uh, things which he had been doing. And so the synagogue leaders in Nazareth, they, uh, they decided to ask Jesus to take the service on that Sabbath. How about that? The local boy is going to take the service. Now, in the synagogue service, uh, there would have been several readings. Uh, the first reading would have been uh, from Deuteronomy 6, which is what they call the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your... You know, you know the passage, don't you? Uh, then there would be a reading from another part of the law, and then there would be a, a reading from one of the prophets. Now, the scriptures were uh, not in Bibles like we have. They were, they were, they were, on, in, in, they were on scrolls. And there was, uh, there was an ark, like in the temple, but an ark, a box, which uh, contained inside it all of the scrolls. And so the attendant on duty would go to the, to the, to the ark, he would pick up the scroll and he would hand it to the reader. And in verses 16 and 17, Jesus was the one who stood up to read. Now, they would stand up to read uh, as a mark of respect for God's word, but when it came to preaching, the preacher would sit down. He'd take a seat uh, to do the preaching. And so, uh, Jesus was handed the Isaiah scroll. And he worked his way through it and he found the passage that he wanted to read and we see it in verses 18 and 19. Let me read that for you. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all eyes were on him. Now he's reading from Isaiah chapter 61 and a bit earlier from Isaiah chapter 58. Written when God's people were in exile in Babylon, 
It's a great promise. It's a great promise that, that they would be released from their captivity. It's a great promise that they would no longer live in, in the darkness and the oppression of Babylon, that they would come home. Now imagine the hope that that gave to those who by the rivers of Babylon lay down and wept as they longed for, as they remembered Zion, God's holy hill. But on this occasion, as Jesus sat down to preach, he spoke the stunning words. Today, he says, today, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's stunning and that's surprising because, well, they'd already been released from, from exile. They'd already been given freedom from their captivity. They'd already been uh, brought back into the land. But Jesus is saying, no, <laughs> the prophecy still applies and it's fulfilled now. Because, friends, our real oppressor is no human ruler. Our oppressor is Satan. Our captivity is a captivity to sin and judgment. And our blindness is a blindness to the truth. But now, says Jesus, now there will be freedom. Now there will be recovery and release. Because you know what? The rightful ruler has now come. Now, Jesus' sermon was longer than what we have here. Uh, Luke <clears throat> tells us that he only began his sermon with these words. Uh, we do know in verse 22 that the congregation, uh, that they were amazed by his, by his preaching and the, the graciousness of his words. But it's a sort of a mixed reaction because, do you note what they, what they say there, what's, what's going on in their minds they're actually saying, hang on a moment, uh, isn't this Joseph's son? <laughs> now, you can take that in two ways. It could be, wow, I didn't know Joseph's son knew the scriptures that well and could preach like that. <laughs> Stunning. Or it could be, hang on a moment, <laughs> who does he think he is? <laughs> we know this guy. He grew up amongst us. This is, this is Joseph's son. Now, it seems in verse 23 that, um, <clears throat> that what they were thinking was the latter. Uh, in verse 23, Jesus read their minds. And uh, their thinking is this. They, he says, surely you'd quote to me a proverb which says, um, physician, heal yourself. And what that's saying is, surely you're thinking, uh, well, if you're that good, then how about you perform some of the miracles that we've heard that you've preached in other parts of Galilee? How about you perform them here, if you really are who you say you are? Now, by the way, you know what a definition of an expert is, don't you? <clears throat> My definition of an expert is someone who's carrying a briefcase and had to catch a plane to get to the meeting. <laughs> <You know? clears throat> that makes them an expert. You know? But in their own home territory, no, no. No one listens to them. And this is what Jesus says here, that, that a prophet is without honour in his hometown. In his hometown, no one listens to the prophet sent by God. And so things start now to become unsettled. 
because he continues speaking to them. In verses 25 through to 27, Jesus speaks about two of Israel's greatest prophets. Indisputably, Elijah. Indisputably, Elisha, his successor, were two of the greatest prophets that God had given. Have a look at what he says about Elijah in verse 25. Verse 25, he said, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not to sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. So here you go, Elijah recognises great prophet. There was a drought in the land and God sent uh, Elijah to stay with a widow and God miraculously provided food for both Elijah and the widow. But how many widows were there in Israel? What, is, what does Jesus say? There were, there were many. How many, how many widows in Israel did God, send, did God send Elijah to to be cared for? None. None. God had to send Elijah outside of Israel to be cared for to a Gentile living in a place called Zarephath, which is in Sidon, which would have been in Phoenicia, today's Lebanon. In other words, he sent Elijah to a Gentile because there was no one in Israel who would care for him. Secondly, there is Elisha, Elijah's successor. Verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman was a high-ranking official in the Syrian uh, um, uh, army who developed leprosy. How many lepers were there in Israel? Jesus says that there were many. How many of them were healed? Jesus says none. None. But God did lead a Gentile from Syria, and we know where Syria is, Sadly, it's too often in the news. God sent a Gentile from Syria to be cleansed. Now, this is very, very unsettling for the people in the synagogue in Nazareth on that day because, you see, being religious doesn't make anybody right with God. You can go to the synagogue Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. Uh, you can go to the synagogue all your life. You can go to church Sunday by Sunday. You can go to church all of your life. And it can be a smokescreen which disguises your, your lack of faith, your lack of trust. And now they are exposed. <laughs> you see, they get it. <laughs> they get what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is saying that they are unfaithful like Israel was in the days when Ahab and Jezebel ruled. When, when, when Elijah had to confront them and to bring, God had to bring upon, upon them a drought. Jesus is saying that they are unfaithful like, like Israel at the time of Elisha was. So in verses 28 to 30, <clears throat> there 
They're furious. They don't curry favour here because he's a son of their congregation. No, no, they, 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 they drove Jesus out of town, took him up to a cliff. They tried to throw him off a cliff to kill him. And in what actually may be the miraculous sign, he just kind of walks straight through them and goes on his own way. Now, it is now time for an unsettling to take place in another Galilean town. In verse 31, Jesus goes to Capernaum. And on the Sabbath, he gets another invite to teach in the synagogue. And when he did, the congregation was absolutely amazed. They were amazed by two things. Uh, First of all, in verse 32... Uh, they were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. You see that, verse 32? See, when, when rabbis taught in the synagogues, rabbis didn't particularly value originality. <laughs> uh, when the rabbis taught, they would tend to make a point and say that rabbi such and such, he said this. Uh, they'd quote some rabbi from the past, some highly esteemed rabbi, and they're always quoting other rabbis and saying, this is what rabbi such and such, rabbi so and so, this is what they said. And this is why I'm saying it to you today. Um, One of the uh, famous rabbis from the first and the second century, Rabbi Eliezer, uh, he said, he was quoted as saying, I can tell you this, that I I have said nothing in my life that wasn't taught to me by uh, my teachers, by other rabbis. Yet when Jesus teaches, he says to the crowds, surely, surely, I say unto you. Surely, surely, I say unto you. This was revolutionary. This was refreshing. This was someone who actually spoke with authority. Now, I wouldn't actually stand here and say, surely, surely, I say to you. I'd stand here and say, surely, surely, Jesus says unto you. Because Jesus is the one who's got authority. But it's not just authority with words. In verses 33 through to 35, there is a man who is possessed by a demon. Now, this is not some sickness. This is not a a person who's suffering from um, epilepsy. This is a demon. A demon who speaks. A demon who speaks with the unsettling knowledge of who it is that he's facing. This is a demon who speaks with the unsettling knowledge of whose kingdom is now arriving. Have a listen. Verse 34. In verse 34. Verse verse 33. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit, and he cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? He knew the answer to that. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Friends, in James chapter 2, verse 19... Even the demons believe in God. That doesn't get them to heaven because they shudder. They shudder. 
Now here we see that Jesus told him sternly to be quiet. I take it that because it's, 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 it's not the right time. It's too early for the crowds in general to know uh, his identity as the Son of God because as word spread about that, so too would the opposition uh, intensify, the opposition which would intensify and take him to the cross. That would come, but the time was not yet. However, in a clear sign of things to come, things to come for Satan and things to come for us, Jesus only has to speak a word. He only has to speak a word and this, this demon is driven out and this poor man is freed, is released from the opposition. He is freed from the tyranny of his oppressor. Just like Isaiah said. Now imagine that. People in the, in the synagogue in Capernaum that day, they're amazed by his authoritative teaching and they are amazed by his, his authority over the one who is the prince of this world. Then in verses 38 through to 41, we see more of the releasing power of Jesus. Um, first of all, he does something which Dr. Luke would have, would have loved to be able to do. Now, we haven't been introduced to the disciples as yet. Uh, we'll be introduced to Simon, Peter and others a bit later on. But uh, here we're told that Jesus goes to the home of Simon Peter's mother-in-law and Luke alone says that she had a high fever. Luke knew what was an what was a acceptable fever and what was actually a high fever uh, because of his medical training or his medical uh, work. And Jesus does what Luke would have loved to have done. He heals Simon Peter's mother from a high fever. Secondly, in verse 40... Uh, Luke then notes that the sun was setting. Now, on the, Sabbath, on, on the Sabbath day, when the sun sets, you know what's happened? The Sabbath has ended. The Sabbath has ended because the sun's setting. And it's now that Luke tells us as the sun's setting that people start to bring all of their sick relatives and friends, probably carrying some of them, uh, to Jesus because they know that they can work, it's not the Sabbath. And, uh, and it's extraordinary what happens. Crowds of people surrounding Jesus, sicknesses are healed, demons, as they shouted out their last ditch act of futility saying, you are the son of God, well, they're defeated. They are expelled. And what we see, friends, here is the great victory. But what we need to ask ourselves is this question, what is it that we are to make of the healings and the exorcisms of Jesus? What does it all actually mean? There are some Christians I've come across at various times who have uh, made some pretty bold statements and some who have said that Christians, that all Christians, should be able to miraculously heal people today just as Jesus did. 
and drive out demons and so on. Now, God heals in all sorts of ways through medical practitioners. Uh, God heals sometimes miraculously in ways that we can't explain. And we pray for healing, don't we? There are those of us who have loved ones who are sick who pray for healing every day of our lives. Uh, We believe in healings. God heals people. But the healing and demon-defeating ministry of Jesus is a sign. It's a sign to us. It tells us who he is. It tells us that this one is God's anointed king, the rightful ruler over all of creation. Uh, In in Isaiah 35, a different passage, not the one Jesus quoted in the synagogue, but in Isaiah 35, the prophet said that there would be a day when the blind would see, when the deaf would hear, when the mute would speak, when when the lame would leap for joy. There would be a day. There would be a day when the effects of the Garden of Eden, the effects of the fall, the effects of the work of the evil one, the effects of our rebellion against God, which lead to sickness and suffering and even death, will be no more. So when you see these things happening, when you see demons being driven out, when you see the sick being healed, when you see people being raised from the dead, you know what's happened? It is because the king has arrived. These miracles tell us who Jesus is. But they are also a sign about us. They're a sign of our future. During the week, a Christian friend from our previous church and his wife said goodbye to their son as he went to be with the Lord. Uh, He had been very, very seriously unwell for all 16 years of his life. And I doubt that barely a day would have gone by without them praying for some form of release, some healing. I wrote to his grandmother during the week. She's a special friend. And I said to her these words, amongst others, I said, we can't imagine what it is like for you at this time, but only know that Tim is now with our Lord and will receive his longed-for, perfect and imperishable body. She wrote back uh, with a sense of gratitude that she said, you know what, Scott, We're actually feeling conflicted right now because we wanted him to go home. Through her tears, she, uh, uh, with other members of, of her family and church, understands the victory which Christ has won. Understands that there is a day when there'll be no sickness, there'll be no evil, and there will be a heavenly home. When Jesus read Isaiah in the synagogue, he said in verse 19, when he said that I've been anointed to 
to proclaim. He says in verse 19, I've been anointed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And I skipped over that early on, intentionally so, because I want to come back to that. The year of the Lord's favour. It's not referring to a particular calendar year, as if 30 AD or whatever it was was the particular day of the year of the Lord's favour. I think it's a reference to the year of Jubilee. Because in Israel, every 50th year, all debts were cancelled. All slaves were set free. And all of the land, every plot of land, reverted to the original family group to whom God had given that land to. It points to a fresh beginning. It points to a new start. It points to forgiveness of sin, release from the effects of sin, from all strife, from all calamity, from all sickness, and it points to a home in God's heaven. It's a great hope. It's a great hope for all people who align themselves with him who is the rightful ruler, is a great hope for all those who align themselves with him who in John 14, just days before he went to the cross, declared to his disciples, the prince of this world is about to be driven out. And he did that by paying the debt for our sins himself. That's why he came. He actually didn't come to heal everybody who was sick at the time. He didn't come to drive out every single demon there at the particular time. You know, in his hometown, Nazareth, they, wanted, they did not want him to stay. But in verse 42, when he went to Capernaum, they did not want him to leave. They wanted him to stay and to keep healing, and to keep on defeating the evil one. But he, but he, he said, I, I have to leave. I have to turn my back on suffering humanity because Jesus didn't come in order to heal and to drive out demons. He came with the purpose of preaching the good news so that many people would know of God's kingdom he came in order to bring that kingdom into effect with that final defeat of Satan when he nailed the, uh, the, when he nailed the, the very the accusing finger of Satan to the cross and paid our debt on our behalf. So Satan no longer has any power over us. He can no longer point the finger and say, you're sinful, you're going to hell with me. You can say, no, my debt has been paid. I've been released from your bondage and I've actually got a home in heaven and I won't be seeing you there. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for the great work of Jesus. We want to thank you that there is a new ruler in town, that he has come, that he has defeated Satan, 
that he has driven him out, the prince of this world. We thank you, Father God, for the great hope that we now have because we've been forgiven of our sins. We've been released from the power and the effect of sin. And we, uh, like Tim, can look forward to our heavenly home. Father, help us to be aligned to Jesus, who is the rightful ruler over this world. We pray in his name. Amen.